Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Tiffany Devitt. She is a member of Project CBD, which is a nonprofit organization looking at collecting data around the use and application of CBD in society and the population. She's also with Canacraft. She's Chief of Government and Consumer Affairs. We're going to talk to her a little bit about those two roles, how those roles connect, her work in the cannabis space, helping pull together information, really understanding how cannabis, particularly CBD, is being used in in various populations and how that's affecting compliance and and government and policy uh, and how she works with organizations and industry to help make sure that we're using cannabis in appropriate, healthy, safe ways for that highly effective for folks that they can see the benefits of that and we can develop and grow this industry. So with that, Tiffany, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start with a little bit about your background, how you got involved in cannabis, the work that you're doing with the various organizations. Tell us a little of the story and the background and then we we can kind of get into our 
questions and topics? Sure. So I actually spent most of my career in high tech, specifically developing applications for big pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies. Mm -hmm. So I'd been accustomed to working in a highly regulated environment. I moved over to the cannabis space in about five years ago. And in part, I was looking for just a change, a change of pace to kind of inspire me. Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Um, because uh, the cannabis industry is definitely not boring. Yeah. And what I found was my inclination is to come at problems with a very kind of data-oriented approach. As I said, I'm accustomed to working in highly regulated environments. Yeah. So given that California was shifting over to the regulated market, it was a good opportunity for me to participate. Yeah. I'm curious, what did you notice? Uh, I'm most fascinated by people who are coming from kind of very established, you know, regulated markets, markets that have been around for a while, have very established sort of protocols and regulations and highly developed industries. Going from that into cannabis, which is I guess one could say, you know, highly regulated. <laughs> well, that is somewhat questionable, but, you know, at least, you know, wanting to be highly regulated, but not having, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, long history of development and a mature market. What were some of the immediate things that you noticed, you know, go, going into this in terms of the differences of these of these spaces that you had experiences in? Oh, well, it's been interesting because 2014, when I came into this industry, California had medical marijuana, but it was wholly unregulated. Mm -hmm. It was basically what's characterized as a gray market that was emerging from a black market. And the ethos at the time was never, ever, ever put anything in writing because it could be used to prosecute you later on. And it was the real Wild West. And initially, my participation in the industry was, hey, let's put some systems into place, shall we? Yeah. And kind of normalize this as a business. What's happened over the course of that five-year period is, of course, course, California approved recreation, all use of cannabis, adult use of cannabis, and it imposed this regulatory framework so that the cannabis industry in California went from the Wild West, wholly unregulated, to the most regulated industry in the country. So making that transition has been fascinating yeah. and challenging. I'm sure. Uh, and so tell us, where did you first get involved, I guess? What was your first kind of entree into into the cannabis? What groups were you working with and, and what was your initiative? Yeah, so I had been working with Project CBD in kind of a supportive role behind the scenes for quite a while. And that was basically Project CBD is run by my husband. So I was helping out as a business person, getting things lined up, websites, et cetera. And as I was doing that, I was becoming increasingly familiar with the science because what Project CBD does is it really tracks the international science, the preclinical studies, the clinical studies around the world, and was essentially a conduit for that information, kind of bringing it into the mainstream cannabis community, whether that's patients or consumers or manufacturers or clinicians, and helping people really understand what it 
may be good for Mm -hmm. and what may be used to best benefit. So that was fascinating. Over the course of that journey, I saw a couple people who were catastrophically ill that were close to me Mm -hmm. use it when all other pharmaceuticals failed and use it to enormous benefit, which was utterly intriguing to me. And then on the sort of my later entry into Canacraft and to the commercial side of the business was very much driven by a desire to have that understanding of the plan and the therapeutics drive policy and drive production. Yeah. And so on the CBD side, I mean, I guess there, is there any takeaways at this point in terms of areas that the data that that's been collected the research that's been done is showing kind of application effectiveness you know particular methods or, or modalities that are particularly impactful yeah so let's talk about that so project CBD we recently published a survey it's one of the larger surveys done of CBD and cannabis therapeutics there were 3500 over 3500 responses mm-hmm. And what we were trying to drill down, I mean, we had the basic questions about who's using it, how often, et cetera. But more interesting was how it was working for different conditions. So there were over 300 questions in that survey, and we were really trying to drill down into, okay, if you're using it for pain, how effective is it at reducing the frequency, reducing the intensity, reducing the duration? Mm-hmm. Or if you're using it for anxiety, how effective is it at reducing or mitigating the major symptoms of that condition? So whether that's nervousness, mood swings, agitation, irritability. And what we got a sense of over the course of this study is CBD is remarkably effective, particularly at ameliorating anxiety, pain, sleep problems, which are kind of core quality of life issues. Yeah. But it's not a panacea. And if you look at the the specific like symptoms that are like the markers of different conditions, mm-hmm. it's better that at treating some than or ameliorating some than others. And that was fascinating to me. And I'll give you one example. Yeah. So lots of people take CBD for sleep. And for sleep, what's relevant is how long did it take you to get to sleep? How many times did you wake up during the night? And how refreshed did you feel in the morning? Mm -hmm. So when it came to getting to sleep, it was, you know, somewhat helpful. Without it, people said it took them about an hour to get to sleep. With it, it, they said it took them about 20 minutes to get to sleep. So not perfect, but helpful. But what was far more interesting was, on average, people who take it for sleep said that without it, they wake up about, on average, 4.3 times a night, which is quite frequently. With it, they woke up about 1.4 times a night. Wow. Yeah. And that's a huge difference. And what we saw is that about three quarters of people reported a dramatic increase in how refreshed they felt in the morning. And that's tied to its ability to help you stay asleep or get back to sleep more quickly in the middle of the night. And that's the sort of nuance that we were hoping to uncover with this study. Yeah. And this was just uh, people who just using CBD or CBD along with THC or other, you know, other modes that include other parts of the plant. Yeah, both. Um, And in fact, I'm glad you asked that question because one of the things we asked ask people is, are you using CBD with THC, meaning from cannabis? 
using hemp-derived CBD with little to no cannabis. And it was about half and half, but about 10 to 15% didn't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which, which that was surprising. Well, I could, I could see they don't, I mean, I, I'd be surprised if they didn't know if they were like taking a one-to-one or something, but I've, I'm a full spectrum versus broad spectrum, you know, did you have, you know, some minor amount of THC in it? You probably wouldn't feel, but it could have an impact. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. What else, I guess, any, any other key takeaways or learnings or, or just kind of insights into the process of trying to collect this data or analyze this data that, that you've been able to develop? Yeah. So the one, I'll share a little more of the data with you. I have to say the one disappointment I had was people are shockingly unaware of what dose they're taking. Yeah. When asked, you know, how many milligrams a day, most people couldn't say, which suggests that there's a need for better labeling and packaging and better education around that. And of course, one of the things that we would love to know is, is there kind of a sweet spot? Now, the preclinical data suggests that that 20 milligrams is probably a good dose, Mm -hmm. but that's preclinical data. And we are hoping to get much closer to kind of validating dosing or even ratios. The other thing that was surprising is there is not a clear correlation between the ratio of CBD and THC to the condition and efficacy. And it appears that what ratio people use has everything to do with their kind of sensitivity to THC. That said, people with PTSD, with cancer and addiction issues were far more likely to report better efficacy with a little bit more THC. Yeah, interesting. And, yeah. and talk to us about how you actually collected the data and, and why, I mean, I guess give, give people a little sense of why this data is hard to get, why it's important, like where are we in terms of actually having, you know, good good data related to the use of, of CBD and THC and where, where we stand from a kind of a, a scientific point of view. Yeah. So the bottom line is, as you know, cannabis and until recently CBD included was considered schedule one, Mm -hmm. which means there are enormous limitations on the ability of people to do clinical trials or double blind studies or any of the kind of traditional research. So what our feeling when we started doing these types of surveys back in 2015 was we said, okay, there's preclinical and clinical data from other countries, but there's this large-scale experiment, social experiment going on in the U.S. where people are using medical marijuana, cannabis, CBD mm-hmm. for a variety of conditions. And at a minimum, we can at least crowdsource that data and develop a platform for collecting and sharing that information so that we're getting some baseline information about who's using it, what they're using it for, how it works and how it doesn't work, what are the side effects. Those are the five biggies that we wanted to gather. So now that said, we do realize and we do disclose the fact that surveys are not kind of the gold standard for research, right? So we we never want to kind of overstate this and and claim it's definitive medical guidance or something like that. It's not. It it is entirely based on self-reports. And because we recruit from Project CBD, which is going to attract people who are using it and wanting to learn more about it, you're going to have something of a selection bias. Yeah. 
That said, it's still meaningful, useful information, and it suggests avenue for research. Yeah, definitely. It, it kind of it guide or creates a little bit of a map of of where further research you know can and should be done. And you know, when you move into more you know formal clinical research methods, it can it kind of kind of gives gives you some questions that probably need to be investigated first. Yeah. And what was the um, I guess how many how did you actually get people to respond? I mean, what was standing around dispensaries and handing out flyers? What was the what was your actual research process. Yeah, so, so our first process was to push out a call for participants through Project CBD's newsletter or okay. website at projectcbd.org. We did do some postcards at dispensaries and put that message out through social media. Yeah, I'm always curious about people how people actually get to the uh, to the research subjects and, and communicate with them. Um, I, I was frankly surprised that we got so many responses given how many questions there were. And what that said to me is yeah. that people really want to share their experience with cannabis. Yeah. And because they've learned a lot through trial and error, they want to share those learnings with other people. Yeah. Yeah. And that very much is kind of this anecdotal process for, I think, a lot of folks. I mean, they, they kind of talk to friends, talk to family, talk to, you know, other other users and, you know, dispensaries and the bud tenders and things like that. And you kind of triangulate a little bit what you're going to try and, and come up with a strategy yeah. for testing. Um, yeah. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about Canicraft. How, how did that opportunity come up? How, I guess, tell us about that role, what you've been working on there. What is your primary focus? Yeah. So Canacraft is a California-based manufacturing and distribution company. Mm-hmm. My role has been on the kind of policy and compliance side as you said, my title is Government and Consumer Affairs, which means what my objective is, is to make sure that the policies and regulations that are in place are aligned with the uh, aligned with the therapeutic potential of the plan. So there's a lot of opportunity here. Cannabis has an incredible safety profile, especially when you compare it to other pharmaceuticals. Yeah. The question then is how do we make this accessible to people in a way that's safe and represents kind of best business practices? So to that end, I tend to be playing kind of an industry level role, whether that's being on various association boards. And the objective is to really kind of inform the dialogue within Sacramento, within DC and within the public as a whole about cannabis therapeutics and how they should be regulated and over scene. Got it. And uh, you mentioned something that we touched on a while ago on the show, but I, I think it'd be worth getting into again. That you, you mentioned the safety profile. Talk to us about what that means. What is cannabis' safety profile? How does it compare to other you know, other pharmaceuticals? Why is that an important factor when it comes to you know figuring out how, how we're going to bring this to you know the public in a safe, healthy, effective way? Yeah. So uh, to answer that question, I need to give you a little science background. Sure. Go ahead. And if I geek out too much, feel free no, to I love geeking out. Go for it. All right, good. So the endocannabinoid system, that is a physiological system that all of us have. You can think of it as sort of an electrical system. Mm -hmm. 
you've got cannabinoid receptors. You've got what are called the endocannabinoids, which those are agents that work on those receptors. And then you have various transport molecules and metabolizing molecules. And the endocannabinoid system, interestingly enough, is dysregulated in almost every disease state. So you see in PTSD and autism and alcoholism, depression, anxiety, all of those you tend to see lower than normal levels of anandamide, which is an endocannabinoid compound, Mm -hmm. right? So the way you can think of cannabinoids as kind of a, if the endocannabinoid system is like an electrical system, think of the cannabinoids themselves as like a dimmer switch. What they do is they either activate the receptor or tamp it down. Now, it goes without saying that if you have an electrical system, you never want to turn the lights up so bright that you're blinded Mm -hmm. by the light, and you don't want to have them so dark you can't see what you're doing. You really want to be in that middling range, and so the same is true of the endocannabinoid system, those receptors, you want them to be active within a middling range. So endocannabinoids, meaning the ones that our bodies make, Mm -hmm. are called partial agonists, meaning they only work within that middle name. They will never, because of how they're structured, they will never turn that receptor all the way up or all the way down. Cannabinoids are profoundly effective because they very closely mimic the endocannabinoids that our own body produces, meaning they are what's called a weak partial agonist. So Mm -hmm. they too are incapable of turning that receptor all the way up or all the way down, which is why they have an enormous safety profile. And I'll give you one example. There was a study a while back, scientists were trying to figure out at what level is how much THC do you have to have before yeah. you, it kills you with an overdose? Yeah. So they took these monkeys and they fed them the equivalent of three pounds of THC a day. <laughs> oh my yeah. God. <laughs> yeah, I know. Horrible people. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. So the as you would expect <laughs> from your reaction there, the researchers reported that those monkeys spent like three days sitting in the corner of their cages, rocking back and forth. Uh-huh. They were really unhappy, super high little monkeys. Yeah. However, they did not die and they did not have any physiological damage. Interesting. Yeah. And, and the reason for that, it's because that no matter how much THC you have, it cannot activate that receptor beyond a safe range. Interesting. It's like there's guys, kind of like guide, guide rails or guardrails yeah. on the receptor and you just, you, no matter how much you put at it, it's not going to go over a certain level. Yeah. That said, there are certain synthetic cannabinoids that do act as a full agonist, meaning by synthetic, I mean, they act on the cannabinoid receptors. They have a yeah. different molecular structure and they can act as full agonist and they can turn up that receptor all the way up or all the way down with catastrophic effects. And yeah. I'll give you two examples with that. There was this weight loss drug in France and the developer said to themselves, THC causes the munchies. If we block that receptor, it'll suppress appetite. That'll be a great weight loss drug. Mm-hmm. Well, 
it was a great weight loss drug, but unfortunately it blocked that receptor completely, which means it blocked the anandamine, that endocannabinoid anandamine, which by the way is colloquially known as the happiness molecule. Oh no, yeah. And a lot of people committed suicide and that, that product was pulled from the market. The, so that's an example of a synthetic that, that shut that receptor down. The other end of the spectrum is synthetic cannabinoids found in the illicit market, like K2-like spice. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, those cannabinoids can cause the kind of catastrophic lung failures that you're seeing with vaping-related lung il- injuries. Yeah, I've heard a couple of reports on this, that the synthetic cannabis is uh, now looking like a potential culprit for some of this lung problems that people have been having. Yeah, the synthetics like K2 Spice and there are like 650 different other analogs. They can also cause seizures, heart attacks, and and all manner of bad stuff, so... But this is uh, synthetic, meaning laboratory produced. Any anything that's grown as a plant or from you know derived from plant material is gonna is gonna stay within the safety range. Yeah. So that 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 natural plant cannabis has a remarkable safety profile. There are a lot of different reasons why why that's known to be the case. And what's exciting about the the safety of it is. It means that the opportunity for people to explore the therapeutic benefits kind of at their own pace and their own time is remarkably safe in a way that most most pharmaceuticals, it would not be safe for yeah. appropriate. Well, compared to something like uh, Tylenol or something like that, I mean, uh, give, give us a sense of how the safety profile of Tylenol compares to something like cannabis, a, a plant-derived cannabis. Um, I don't know the exact number exactly, but uh, there are quite a few Tylenol overdoses every year. And I'd have to look that up on the CDC poison control website. Mm -hmm. But Tylenol over time, it causes liver damage, it causes kidney damage, and you can overdose on it. Yeah. And certainly compared to things, you know, these opioids that uh, we're having so much problems with. I mean, that, you know, it it seems like such, such a different set of parameters we're working with in terms of what we need to worry about and you know, guidelines we need to put on things, you know, safety and controls. Like I, I get we need to regulate cannabis use. It's, uh, you know, it doesn't need to be regulated, but the, kind of the, the potential risks and the sort of window that we're talking about is so different than some of these other drugs. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you brought up opiates because one of our earlier studies was on uh, on uh, uh, comparing cannabis and opiate use specifically in the treatment of age-related pain. And what consistently, and I think there are about 41 different studies out here on using CBD in conjunction with opiates. And what's consistently found is that CBD interacts with the opiate in such a way that it mitigates the opiate's addictive potential and it mitigates the titration that you typically see with opiates. By titration, I mean increasing your dose over time to get the same effect. But this most recent study found um, that we did is we asked people explicitly who are using CBD to for alcoholism or for addiction. And what we found was that CBD in particular was extremely helpful for getting and staying off opiates, which as I said, is consistent with a number of other studies that show patients voluntarily decrease or go off opiates when they use it with cannabis. It was less effective 
at re- alcohol abstinence, mm. though it was helpful at reducing the amount of alcohol consumption, and it was even less helpful, though somewhat helpful, as a smoking cessation aid. So in terms of efficacy, most helpful with opiate addiction, somewhat helpful with alcohol, moderately, modestly helpful with nicotine. Yeah, it's fascinating. Just it's you know, so much of this is uh, you know where where we are as a society and the use of a lot of these you know these different medications, these different you know chemicals, and and how cannabis is going to play play a role in that as as it becomes you know more widespread and you know more adopted. I mean, you know, big the big problem you know in terms of adoption, I think we're facing is the whole stigma around cannabis and kind of re education that is going on for society, but interesting. That's exactly right. Yeah. In terms of uh, the work you're doing with Canicraft now, what's kind of what's on your plate? What are the big initiatives you have going on? What What is the work that you're kind of focused on and, and the policies and, and things that you're you're hoping to affect? Yeah. So, so three biggies. One is I work with National Cannabis Roundtable and we are working on federal legislation, first getting banking services for the industry and second, federal legal legalization. Mm-hmm. So those are the two big federal priorities in rationalizing a tax structure. Locally in California, we have two major issues that have to be dealt with. One, by way of background, in California today, three quarters of local jurisdictions ban cannabis retail. And 80% of sales are still happening in the illicit so-called black yeah. market. That's a big problem. It is a consumer health and safety problem, and it is a industry-wide problem. So our two issues there are addressing uh, promulgating tax reform so that the cost of cannabis is not twice as much, two to three times more in a licensed dispensary as it is on the black market. And secondly, opening this state up so that we genuinely have people have access to well-tested, well-regulated cannabis. Got it. And I'm curious, you're, there's various legislation and, you know, we at various stages right now. You know, in terms of the you know, the legalization of cannabis, I mean, I, how do you think that's actually going to play out? Because I've heard various theories of, you know, having it rescheduled, descheduled, and, and each of those presents kind of different problems or challenges. And then the whole, who is going to actually regulate it and under in what capacity? I know that CBD was kind of questioned if it was going to be the, the USDA or the FDA if it gets treated as a drug or as a supplement. And I guess, how do you see that most likely playing out? And do you have any opinions on how it should be done, you know, given given what we need as a society to make sure that it's used properly and effectively in, in a health and safety way? Yeah. So there are a couple different questions here. In terms of scheduling, it needs to be descheduled, not rescheduled. Okay. If it's scheduled to, that's going to cause an ungodly amount of operational challenges and will effectively mean that we have the same access issues today or even worse access issues than we have today. Yeah. So it needs to be descheduled first and foremost. In terms of how it is regulated, one, there are two different pathways you can go and whether you take path A or take path B depends on really whether you conceive of this as a therapeutic agent or recreational agent, meaning is it the equivalent of the valerian or St. John's words or vitamin D you buy Mm -hmm. in your grocery store, or is it the equivalent of the six pack of beer? If it's the equivalent of, if it's a recreational product, then the requirements, regulatory requirements should certainly be no more onerous than they are with alcohol, for example. Uh 
And if it's considered sort of a supplement type of product, then uh, requirements and regulations, it should fall under the same thing that the echinacea you buy falls under. Sure. So, and the reason why I say that is I think it's important that we regulate cannabis within existing frameworks and not treat it like it's some rogue agent that's particularly dangerous and therefore warrants particularly unique oversight. Now, that said, from a food and safety standpoint, the federal regulation of supplements could stand to be improved, right? Yeah. And I'm not going to pretend that's perfect. My My point is simply that Cannabis is safer than most things, and therefore there shouldn't be some special structure, and nor should there be a syntax associated with it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Anything else that you see, you know, for people that are in this space that are either thinking about getting into the cannabis business or in the industry or, or in the industry, things that you would suggest they put on their kind of strategic roadmap in terms of changes that they need to consider, you know, shifts in the market, you know, dynamics that are going to kind of play out in the coming months and years, just as, as someone who's highly involved in, in the industry has their kind of finger on the pulse of things. What else is what else is on there? On your yes. map. So what's going to be interesting is federal legalization because that will change everything and the manner by which that happens will change everything. Yeah. So, for example, with the the uh, ironically, the uh, two candidates that are the least supportive of cannabis legalization are uh, Biden and Bloomberg. Uh-huh. Um, and Biden is like apparently still back in the 1970s, you know, <laughs> for madness and thinks it's a gateway drug, even though the National Institute of Health says that it is not. Yeah. And the CDC says that it is not a gateway drug. And there's a preponderance of evidence that suggests it's actually an exit drug. So if you have like a Biden presidency, we'll probably stumble along in the same way we're stumbling along today. There is, however, a progressive legislation moving forward in the House. The House Judiciary Committee just moved forward the Moore Bill, which has some strong social equity, social justice components. That's going to die by the time it gets to the Senate. Mm -hmm. But it's important because what you see is we're moving inexorably in that direction. Now, my personal theory, and I could be totally wrong, I'm speculating. That's fine. Is that Trump will will legalize descheduled by executive order leading up to the 2020 elections? Yeah. It would be a good way if he's running against someone like Biden. It would be a good way to pander to millennial voters. Yeah. But you know who knows? I frankly think Bernie Sanders has a fantastic program laid out for legalization. Interesting. I'll have to check in on that a little bit more. Yeah, so fascinating how the politics end up shaping the industry and then how, you know, what actually gets done in politics end up being impacted by so many other things other than really what's best for cannabis. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, what's best for people. Uh Yeah. Tiffany, this has been a pleasure. Uh, If people want to find out more about you, about Canacraft, about Project CBD, what's the best place to get that information? Yeah, so uh, Project CBD, just visit projectcbd.org and tons of information there on various conditions and the science and whatnot, how to use it if you're a beginner. 
Um, my Canacraft website is canacraft.com. And of course, I'm, uh, can be found on LinkedIn. Awesome. I'll make sure that the links are in the show notes. People can click through and get that information. Thank you so much for taking some time. This was uh, a great uh, sort of deep dive into the research, into really what's happening um, in terms of uh, you know understanding how these drugs are uh, benefiting people and, and the kind of parameters and the use and, and also what needs to get done and hopefully what will you know help kind of shape this industry to, to be uh, positive for, for everyone involved. Um, it's certainly been a pleasure. Thank you, Bruce. And hopefully next time we chat, we'll be chatting about legalization. Exactly. Exactly. I hope so. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.